It unfolded in front of me, and it was just one large celebration. It was an upstairs living room and an eating area and a kitchen you could see through. Second wave of family had come in. It was a family reunion. Forty people gathered in this one space. There was hugging, and there was the changing of greetings and catching up as quickly as possible. And over time, I slowly moved to the side just watching it happen, and Asa ended up right next to me. We were both kind of stunned by everything that we were seeing, and I just leaned over her, to her and I said, this is your legacy. I knew this was going to be hard. Every time I thought of it yesterday outside, I would just sit and cry. Let me take you a step back. Asa Unidal Johannesson, born in Norway in the 1930s, lived during World War II, which for Norway was a time of real famine. Very difficult time. Her parents died early. As a 16-year-old, she decided there was no hope for her in Norway, and so she set off for America. You can imagine the courage and the risks that you take as a 16-year-old, not knowing what you're going to. Her husband, also a teenager, came a couple years later. They met through a friend who was on the same boat as him. They were all following the American dream, and they discovered it. This was a place of opportunity for them. Her husband was an engineer in New York City, and so God gave them a favored life. But they got the best blessing of all that America could give you. At a Billy Graham crusade in the 1960s, they met the living God through Jesus Christ. And everything about this family changed at that moment. God gave them five children, and they raised them with faith. But death visited her once again. Her husband died at the age of 50 much too young to go, but she had two still daughters at home, so she went back into the work world. She decided she was going to get her college degree, and so she worked and then worked at night to get her college degree. She served God, and today she's 85 years old, 35 years after losing her husband. She serves with Meals on Wheels, in her words, serving the old people. <laughs> she goes on mission trips to Latin America where she paints schools and serves the less fortunate. This past summer, she volunteered to lead a group of, I think, five or seven-year-olds in vacation Bible school. She did say by the end of the week, she was ready to wrap all their heads together, and we said, you didn't do that, did you? And she said, no, but... You see, this was just two weeks ago for me. It was at Bethany Beach in Delaware. We were having a family reunion. Asa is my mother-in-law. And this was the first time we'd been together as a group like this since Keith, her son, had died. So you can imagine how the room was charged with emotion as we all came together. Four of her five kids were there. Five of her five sons and uh, daughter-in-law. Uh, we are probably the most happy that she came to America. 
20-plus grandchildren and their spouses, six great-grandchildren, a few couldn't be there. See, she made a choice, she had faith, and she followed a dream. And there was sitting in front of her was her legacy. I really think it was God's providence that she and I stood together. It really was. Everybody else was bursting, but we were just kind of sitting there with our mouths open. Asa, this is your legacy. We're in a story about a legacy of a woman. Her name was Naomi. For those of you who are picking the story up midstream, you haven't been here, this was a family that lived in Bethlehem. The house of bread, interestingly enough, had a famine. And they went to Moab. And while there, this woman's husband died. And her two sons took wives and the sons died. It's really a story of death in many ways. In the end, Naomi gets a view to come back to Judah to start over because there's not much for her as a widow in that foreign place. And one of the daughter-in-laws, Ruth, agrees to go with her. And in the process, there's an unfolding of a story where two women take incredible risks. And as a result, we are sitting here today as part of their legacy. If Naomi were here this morning, I would kind of just lean over here and say, Naomi, here's your legacy. Why? Because she was a part of God's movement that was changing the world. I don't know how I'm going to preach this, but here we go. Get your Bibles out. I want to pull out a few verses. If you will enter into this story with me, you will recognize that God is telling a better story than you see in your life. Even if everything's going great, God is telling a better story in your life. And if you will cooperate with the script writer, you'll get a chance to experience incredible joy even in the midst of pain. Verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friends, sit down here, and he turned aside and sat down. Now let me just give you a few perspectives. The gate in antiquity of Judah was the place where the center of all of life of the city. News came from without, news came from within. It's where transactions were made, legal transaction. Boaz is there purposely for a legal transaction. There would have been beggars all around. This was the place, the center. Like in Africa, the marketplace was the center. The gate was the center of the city in Judah. And it mentions here in this passage about a redeemer. So those of you who are just picking the story up, let me just give you a few quick tidbits. In ancient Israel, there was a concept known as the kinsman redeemer. It was in many ways the social security system of the day. When a woman would lose her husband, rather than casting her off because women could not necessarily find work for themselves in that time, another member of the family would marry her and bring her in. This was a way to keep the land and the family together. Uh, It's hard for us to understand it because we're so mono-viewing and things, but it really was a good system in the day in which it lived, uh, and it worked. 
And there was a redeemer that was supposed to be promised for Naomi and Ruth in the process of this story. Uh, you can go back and listen to Pastor Jackie and Pastor Nathan's sermons if you haven't been here to get set up to this and really see where it's at. This is really a rich story. I'm so sad it's ending today, except that next week we start the superiority of Christ. So now we're really moving forward. But this is what's going on here. And Boaz sees the person who's supposed to be the legal redeemer. The text is great in Hebrew. It says, turn aside, friend. This is the most nondescript Hebrew word you can say. Hey, buddy, this is Mr. No-Name, okay? And I don't say that to mock him, but the Hebrew text is really making a point. There are three people we're going to remember from this story, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, and Mr. No-Name is going to go on his own way. What's his name over there? This is what happens, verses 2 to 4. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. If you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I will come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Um, So much going on here. So many fun pieces that are being there, but the most important thing to see is Boaz does the right thing. He already has it in his heart to have this land and to have Ruth. He's already made a promise to her, but he will not go outside of God's way of doing things. Even in the risk of faith that he's taking, he stands true to the way God works. And land is very important. Now, the response of Mr. No-Name is, I will redeem it. This is a great opportunity. He's going to rally the cash that's needed to redeem that land to be a part of it. Then Boaz goes on in verse 5 and adds a twist to it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Let's just go on to verse 6. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. You see, Mr. No Name wanted the land, but he didn't want the woman. And his language is interesting. I do not want to impair my inheritance. Now, there's a lot of debate and commentaries about what his reasoning was. Maybe he had enough money for the land, but not enough money to take care of Ruth. Maybe Ruth liked a lot of nice clothes and those kinds of things. But that's just not really the story. Ruth's a gleaner. She's been begging. This is not a hard woman to bring into your family. She's going to be a contributor right from the beginning. So what do I think is going on? I don't think it's ability. I think it's his attitude. And I especially hear it in the way Boaz says her name, Ruth the Moabite. You know, that foreigner, the one whose husband died, maybe there's a curse on her life. Boaz is setting it up. Even though he's going the right way, I think Boaz is a pretty wise guy in what's happening. But what we do see is the one who was to be the kinsman redeemer says, no, you take it, Boaz. Uh, There's a whole lot of language I'd like to go into. We're we're running way out of time, so I'm just going to jump all over it. It moves really quickly. The people celebrate. I want to go to verse 11 where the women respond. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses 
May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. As it is established, the people break out in praise. May the Lord make this happen. Now, this woman, Tamar, is a very interesting story. You should go to Genesis 38 this afternoon and read it. If you want a spicy, hot biblical story, this is one. And it's interesting in their blessing, they include her because she needed a kinsman redeemer, and her redeemer was Judah, the tribe which David would come from, that's going to be mentioned in this space. There is something so big in this scripture that's happening that it's really pointing to the main storyline that God is writing the script. I wish we had time to go into all the aspects of it. Verse 13, kind of pinnacle moment, but it goes by really quickly. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. The Lord gave her conception. Do you hear it? Do you hear it in the language? There's an amen back there hearing it. Come along with me. See, the text is loaded with clues. Naomi is an earthly hero. Ruth is an earthly hero. Boaz is an earthly hero. But really, the hero of the story is God. Because he's telling the story. He's making it happen. He's the one. And it finishes with a little short paragraph on Naomi having the baby sitting on her lap, celebrating what's going. And then this declaration that Ruth has been to you for more than seven sons could have been. That's absolutely ridiculous in biblical times. It's telling us once again, this story is not just about the men. This story is about the women. And what God has been doing through them and preparing in this aspect, there's a celebration that's happening in these moments. In this Bethlehem gate, now think about it for a moment, where Boaz is making the transaction, some 1,600 years later, a father with a mother on a donkey are going to come riding through and the story is going to be completely connected together in ways that we can't even see now. In these moments, they're going to have Obed as a son and Obed is going to have Jesse and Jesse is going to have David and out of David is going to come our Messiah. This is 1,600 years probably before Jesus walks on this earth, at least 1,200 years before. The back line of the whole story of Ruth is this. God is establishing a name for Himself, and you're part of that family line. So what's my so what? I'm going to do two so what's with two now what's. Made it by 11 o'clock. First one is this. God is always telling a gospel story. God is always telling a gospel story. Before Jesus came on the line, who is the true good news, it was all pointing to Him. And ever since Jesus came on the line and established good news for us forever, it has been all pointing back to Him. Everything finds its center in Jesus. Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz are only pointing the way to Jesus. 
out of their line, their legacy comes Jesus. You and I come out of their legacy. Can you imagine Naomi that day sitting with her grandson on her lap? She had no idea that you would be in the family photo. (laughs) Think about it. It's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Because God's always telling a good news gospel story. See, the text that we see sometimes can be very bleak, and it was bleak for Naomi in the same way that it was bleak for Asa when she was in Norway, in the same way that it's bleak for some of you in the situations that you go through. In those moments, the text is not telling a good news story, but the subtext is this. God is always redeeming. God is always restoring. God is bundling up the things that seem like the most painful in our life, and He's turning them to His glory if we will allow Him to write the script. This is powerful, especially for those of us when we go through suffering. I almost said for those of us if we're going through suffering, at some point we will go through suffering. We will. And the only thing that's going to get us through is a hope and the knowledge that God is telling a better story. The Bible story over and over proves that God is in charge. So what's my now what? It's to trust Him. We say, Chuck, how, how do I trust Him? That's really hard for me. I've prayed with four or five of you this week who are saying, I just don't know how to trust Him. How do you trust Him? You trust Him by getting to know Him. You, when you know who God is and the character of who He is, you will have confidence when the difficult times come to be able to trust Him and how He'll come through. If you are casual with Him, you will not have the sustenance of relationship to trust Him when the difficult things come. There's a whole bunch of quotes I wanted to read from Carolyn Custis James. If you haven't read this book, read to the end because there's some great declarations about that. I'm not going to take time. But this is it for some of you. It is time to start deepening your relationship with God. I don't say this to judge you. I don't say this to critique you. I don't say this to anything except to spur you on because I know that bad days are going to come for you. Will you please press into your relationship with God more than on Sunday because you are going to need the character and the depth of that relationship when the difficult times come and in those moments you'll be able to trust Him. The Sunday check-off church thing isn't going to work anymore. It's not going to work anymore. You need to know God. You'll know God by being in His Word daily. You'll know God by being in a prayer relationship with Him. You'll know God by getting along other people that are pressing into Him. We need disciples in this day because there's a crunch time coming for the church. We've lived with a false sense of power for way too long. We are now being entrusted as the church was in New Testament times to be the weaker institution as one who can live according to the kingdom of God. And that type of living will not happen by being people that are casual with God. We need to be people that are pressed into God. Now it's all grace. It's all grace. The fact that I even want to press in, the fact that I'm calling you to press in is the grace of God, but we seize that grace. And take hold of it for our lives. None of this is on the manuscript. This is all free from God. This wasn't even planned for today.
Never know what God's going to do at Stanwich Church. The second so what is this? Your choices and your courage matter. Naomi wasn't a puppet. Even though God was writing the story, she had to cooperate. Ruth wasn't a puppet. Even though God was writing the story and orchestrating, and she had to take the risk and go to that gleaning field and press up in faith that maybe Boaz would be the Redeemer. Boaz had to have the faith to move forward and make decisions to cooperate with God's story. Your courage and your decisions matter. As you have risk before you, do not allow logic and reason to be your final answer. Use logic and reason, but don't let that be your final answer. See, there were two sisters, Orpah and Ruth. Orpah did the prudent thing. She did the thing that you normally would do when you want to take care of your inheritance. And she got her inheritance. I'm sure it was a good one. God blessed her. But Ruth got the exceptional inheritance. She was a Renaissance woman before there was a Renaissance. She, as a Moabite, was engrafted into the Messianic line. There are only five women included in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1, and Ruth is one of them. She got there through taking a risk. Mr. No-Name did the prudent thing. He guarded his inheritance. I don't want to impair my inheritance. Isn't that an interesting line? I'm sure his inheritance was good. I'm sure he walked away with a good return. But what about Boaz's inheritance? That inheritance speaks right into today into us right now. Boaz did the crazy thing. He did it in the right way, but he stood against ethnic and racial hatred. He stood against gender stratification. He stood against public opinion, what people would think about an old man taking a younger woman. He stood against everything that society would say you should be listening to. And the result of it is that he has an inheritance that lasts, what, 3,600 years later? I don't want to be Mr. No-Name, I want to be Boaz. So what's the now what? Go for it. Don't gulp at the price tag, don't gulp at the risk, go for it. Invest in your legacy. Take risk. Do it in the right way like Boaz did, but take risk and see what God does. You say, well, how do I do that? You need to know God's promises. See, to trust Him, you need to know Him, but to take risks, you need to know God's promises. It is not the promises that you make to God that ensure your inheritance in the future. It's the promises that you believe He's spoken over you that will secure your inheritance in the future. I don't know if I said that straight, but it was coming in my brain in different ways. Trust God in His promises. One last word. Galatians 3. Throw it up there, Matt. 
This is the outcome of all things. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Uh, We were foreigners. We were outcasts. We had no standing. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we may be justified by faith. But now the faith has come. We are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons and daughters of God through faith. For as many as you as we're baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And my friends, we are Naomi's legacy.